What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is Blues Rock Titan, my friend and yours, fellow Paisan, a man of the world. What else can I say? I'm getting so I'm dizzy. Friends and, 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 and just a fantastic guy. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Zito. Thank you for doing this, man. And let's do a Costanza. That's as good as it gets. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. It was a hell of a show. Yeah, you know, I sometimes, you know, because, you know, because I read every comment about me. I have some, I have a thing on my phone where, where, where it alerts me worldwide of everything that somebody's saying. And I have it all so it triggers all the negative stuff. And somebody said, like, well, Joe's interviews are softball. I'm like, I I'm not Mike Wallace, okay? Yeah. It's not hard. I invite my friends on the show. We, we talk about music and things we like. You know, you were hosting a, a, a podcast. I mean, you know, it, uh, like, what, 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 you know, like, in interview people and, and in the public eye, it's like there's so much negativity in the world. Like, why would you want to get involved? In Just, like, talk about music, a couple of friends. Why, why, why put anything out anymore? Because, well, first of all, just quickly, do you really have that or are you being funny? Do you really get an alert? No, I, I, I'm, that's, a, that's a total joke. But I do, oh, but I I do try to read so. everything. Because I, I, I was getting ready to have like a, like a sobriety moment with you. Like, no, don't do that. No, um, no be, it would be awful. It would be all, you, all encompassing. You make a great point. It's, it's like, golly, everything you put out, somebody's going to shit on. You know that every time... Anytime you put a video on YouTube or an, an album on iTunes or there's within an, a minute, there's a thumbs down. Right. Like immediately. <laughs> like, who is this person? This is like, oh, there he is again. Click. You know, like, God, dog, how is it possible? Like, they, like if, you, if you've got a string intro, they, they'll, they'll put the thumbs down before you even get to the song. The intro is not even done. Yeah. Uh, I think there's this is how special I think I am. There's someone somewhere that does get alerts to anything I do and they're like, all right, get on it, thumbs down, dislike. Um, like they jump on it immediately. And you mentioned you had a picture up the other day where it was a picture of you and um oh man, who was it? Uh your producer, Kevin. And you were uh saying back in the day when we didn't need uh, you know. We didn't have social media or you didn't have to maintain all of this. And it was about the room and something that happened that night. Right. And um, I mean, it obviously it, it strikes me because we're I'm a little older than you, but we're of an age where our heroes were B.B. King that toured 300 shows a year. And they did it night after night and did it in front of an audience. And now, I mean, that happens. But there's this other thing. Yeah. It has to be done. And it does. It has all this negativity. Everyone can be involved. You just have to kind of throw it out there and just, I mean, I care about it. Of course, you want to connect with your fans. You want them to know what you're doing, what's going on. You know, I have to. Um, but it got to a point at one time where it was like, not about let's make some great music. What are you writing some new songs? You know, what are you? It was we have to get more people to follow you online. So can you wear a costume? Can you do a dance? Is there a character you want to portray? Like, and that's not any of the things that I don't think either one of us signed up for. 
No, and, and there's actually social media people that will go, you have to post at a certain time. This is the verbiage that it should be. This is the kind of content that, that gets the most quote-unquote engagement. Now, like this interview is, is not only a podcast, but it's also a broadcast on YouTube and, and Facebook and other places. Yeah, yeah. And I know immediately the comments are going to start. as like, why is he wearing the damn scarf? He's inside. Right? And... I say, well, nice, I'm Doctor Who again, and I'm just influenced by, you know, I, I was like, you know, I'm bringing back wearing scarves since it's a trend. You yeah, know? I like it. Just just think of all of the millions of fans you have. Like, I just think of the hundreds of fans that I have and how every now and then a few of them can be really obnoxious. And then I can't imagine the the level of, of obnoxious that you deal with. And then I think, God, what what is like? What's John Mayer doing? Like, like, do they read this shit? I'm sorry. Can we curse? Oh yeah, we can curse. It's this is open forum. I, I posted that on your Instagram. That it was my main question. I work blue. I need to know if I can listen. We could broadcast this at two o'clock in the morning. Last set. Send the kids home. That's the one I want. That's the show. But you know, anyway, it's whatever. It's fine. But that picture when you put that. It hit home. I thought, yeah, you know, it used to be like, um, I remember I would open up for Tab Benoit. I would tour with him for years. And if I did a show, we came out and, and there was a chance to like, like try to do something and get the audience really excited and fired up. And then Tab would come out and he would be like, well, okay. And then he would like throw down and then really play hard. Because like the opening act came out and kind of gave him a run for his money. And then he right. let everyone know, no, I'm the reason you're here. You bought right. my tickets. And at the end of the night, there was something that happened. You know, the people left. What a show. Oh, my God. You know, that was fantastic. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I know that happens. But now there's this other thing. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you leave it on the stage for the people who were there. And we come from that school. It's yeah. like you leave the great nights on that stage and you leave the shit nights on that stage. Yeah. And one, one of the most liberating things I did, we, we every once in a while we do this band called Rock Candy Funk Party. And we do it at the Baked Potato. It's the size of this living room. And there's 80 people in there. And before, it was it was very much a camera-friendly festival. And and I just remember the band playing, getting more uptight because because – People would post, we would fuck up an arrangement or we would do something. I would just blatantly stick the landing on a clam because you're just going for it. And then it's online and you got all this stuff. And like the minute we said, okay, guys, we filmed these things a bazillion times. We're not going to film it. Everybody just enjoy it old school in the room. Yeah. It was the best run of shows we had done because there was just that, that, that level of, you know, that's intimacy. This note starts in here and ends in here. Right. And that's it. You know? And it's for you. It's for you in front of me. You know, mm -hmm. we're not playing for a filmed audience. I'm playing for you right now. Right. Um, and I miss that. And I know that still happens. I mean, you know, we, we play shows and the people love it. It's great. I'll be honest, kind of along those lines, because we haven't played many shows in the past year. The things I have gotten to do, like maybe outdoor jam patio you know i'm home and my buddy owns a restaurant and he does like a jam and right. he brings all these great musicians in and all of a sudden everybody's just playing again 
Mm-hmm. We're just playing. Everybody's just kind of cutting loose, having fun. It's not a production. It's, uh, right. you know, you start going for it again. And uh, that has that has been fun. But anyway, someone's already thumbs down this already, this interview, and they haven't even seen it. We haven't even gotten past the intro and we got thumbs down. So <laughs> I, 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 I was going to bring this up later, but 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 what I wanted to ask you about is is what we're talking about in the sense that um, and this is going to air several weeks from now, but but I, there's been a controversy in the guitar world because on Saturday Night Live, an artist who I don't know, but I know some of the players in her band, Phoebe Bridgers, decided to take an $85 Dan Electro and smash it against a fake monitor and break the neck off, which is actually harder than it looks. Okay, you got to hit the damn thing hard. And, and it took away from what... What was a really good performance, and what would it, it and, and now there's this whole debate on like, well, if if she didn't want the guitar, why didn't she just give it to somebody? It's like, and at that point, I go, rock and roll is officially dead and gone, okay? And it's not her fault, it's nobody's fault. But if we are so sensitive, and literally we live in this circular firing squad, you 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 do a show, everybody fires at you. I do a yeah. show, everybody fires at me. Somebody smashes a guitar, everybody fires at her. Eventually, nobody's going to want to do anything because why the hell would you? Yeah, or they do things staged such in a way that it's just to get a buzz. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's not always a natural thing. And you're right. Rock and roll probably is dead as far as being you know popular music. I mean, of course, it lives on in other ways, like the blues does. Maybe the rock and roll is not at the forefront anymore. Maybe it'll come back. People are different. Who would have thought that that would be weird? You know, when we saw that when we were kids, it was uh, part of the rock and roll show and, and uh, exciting. Um, I saw Garth Brooks in, in concert in 1992 at the height of his career and right. him and the other guitar player run at each other and smashed Takamini acoustic guitars. And I, my first thought was, how many, I wonder how many Takamini guitars they have on tour. They must have like a hundred in cases just, right, right. just laying around. They must be seconds or, or, you know, maybe they're not even like fully developed guitars. They're still in the embryo state where they're, they're not finished, you know? Well, you know, I mean, they're, they're probably designed to bust apart. Because, right, you know, it's it, it's it's hard. I mean, you look at it. It would be very disappointing if they smacked them against each other and nothing happened. Yes, and and if you have a bolt-on neck, okay, yeah, it's much diff- more difficult to break up the guitar than it is if you have a set neck. Like right. Townsend used to smash the SGs and the Rickenbackers. Well, those neck joints were very, very, you know, they're first. Right. And you got all the weight differential going up and down that neck. Yeah. But Hendrix at Monterey, when he smashes and burns up the strap, he's banging the hell out of that against a concrete yeah. stage, and that neck doesn't want to come off. I mean, you. It takes a little bit of hook, right. as they say, to, to, to bust I, up the strap. I think your point is, this is, and I know you would agree. Hey, look, man, um, I don't do things. Of course, I'm not anybody, but I think any artist, I'm not, I don't necessarily do things based around, well, how will the audience react? Is this appropriate? Should we not do it? Are they going to dislike this? Or are they going to like this? Or... Let's just make sure we do things that we think they're going to like, because look at this, like things have changed and it's not cool to 
to talk a certain way or act a certain way. Things just change. And um, I just continue to do whatever it is that I do. I don't break guitars. Um, although I have broken a guitar before. Mm -hmm. that, that's not true. Um, but I was drunk. So, and that's been a long time. So. <laughs> and I think I just took a strat and threw it way up in the air and the body cracked in half. Okay. Wow. Yeah, the neck didn't, the body just split down probably wherever they put it together. You know, it just. Yeah. There's the seam. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So but, you're in St. Louis. Yeah. And, you know, into a, a very rich musical heritage. I mean, you know, you know, obviously, you know, big, well, Missouri. Missouri, there's a lot of famous musicians, sure. like Big Joe Turner, Sheryl Crow, you know, Johnny Johnson, Chuck Berry. Yeah. You're immersed in all that music. Who was the host that got Mike Zito into blues and blues rock and the kind of music, you, you know, we, we yeah. all play? Yeah, man. Um, first of all, I love St. Louis. I mm -hmm. love growing up in St. Louis. And um, <laughs> I almost laughed. You were like the rich. And I was like, yeah, we weren't rich in St. Louis. There was nothing right. rich in South St. Louis, but you're right. But the music was, yes, like by far, and and the food have mm -hmm. really really great. Food. We'll get to that. Um, I grew up in South St. Louis, and my dad worked at Anheuser Busch for 39 years as a bottler. Wow! And we lived in an apartment. No one played music. There was no uh, instrument. And I, he was like 50 when I was born, so I was like the rhythm method on a drunken Saturday night, gone awry, right? Catholic. And um, so everyone was older than me. My brother was in Vietnam when I was born. He's like 18 years older than me. There was just, but my dad listened to big band records. Mm -hmm. He's a World War II guy and he loved right. uh, big band music. And he listened to Sinatra and Dean Martin. And so as a little kid, I just listened to whatever he was listening to, right. which was big band music. And then I listened to, um, I saw Jackson 5 on TV. I was always kind of singing and dancing, mm -hmm. jumping around, trying to get people to pay attention to me, you know. But there was really no guitar. Um, but there was a music store five, three blocks from where I lived in that apartment called Tower Grove Music. And it was opened the year I was born in 1970. It was there almost 30 years. Wow. It was just... You know, you walk up the street, across the street, and it was in a little strip plaza, mm -hmm. and there it was. And they were like a legitimate fender dealer, PV dealer, repair shop, you know, like a, yeah. a guitar store. Which the store today is Eddie's Guitars. Okay. In St. Louis. So uh, it's a long history. But, you know, I would wander up there, and I got turned on to Van Halen when I was a kid, and uh, got excited about guitar. He's still one of my all-time favorites. And I eventually got a job at that store. I mean, I just went in there all the time. It's all I did. And um, I got a job when I was there. I was 18. And I probably worked for Ed for almost a decade. Right. And and that's my education of everything. Yeah. Everything musical and guitar, because there was none at home. Um, I had one guitar lesson before that with Richard Fortas. Oh, wow. 14. Our friend, our friend Richard Ford is from St. Louis. Yeah. yeah. He was 17 and he was teaching at a, a another store called Encora Music. And um, somebody said there was, you know, a good guitar player there. He was in a band, you know, side note, he was in a really great band after he got out of high school that we followed mm -hmm. a lot, you know. Right. Um, so that that store, that that's that's where I just all I knew was. I want to entertain and I want to learn how to play guitar. Kind of late 
you know, I mean, I played guitar through high school, but I really had no idea what I was doing. And I weren't really, I was just, but I was always kind of singing in the band or I would maybe play bass in the garage band because the guitar player was better or that kind of thing. But that store, man, I mean, I didn't know it then, but now I look back and I think what a amazing gift that it was right there because that's the store Johnny Johnson came in fairly regular. Mm-hmm. That's the store where I met Chuck Berry. He wow. came in with his son, Charles, big George Brock, Benny Smith, Peter Mayer that played, uh, that plays with uh, Jimmy Buffett mm-hmm. and his brother uh, lives around the corner. Rich came in that store. Like anybody that was doing anything, right? they were coming in that store and I was just a kid working there. So I would, it was a little store. So I would just watch them and, asked them what they were doing. And um, so at, at first, early on, I didn't realize I was into blues. But somebody asked me what kind of music I liked. Mm-hmm. One of these adults. Right. And I said, well, I like, uh, I like Van Halen, and I like Johnny Winter, and I like Jimi Hendrix, and I like, uh, oh, who else? Gary Moore had just come out. So I really like Gary Moore. And he goes, well, I think you like Sounds like you like blues. I was like, oh, maybe I do. Right. <laughs> maybe. Right. What is this blues that you speak of? You know, I mean, I just knew rock and roll. Yeah. And um, so they had B.B. King live at the Regal. And he suggested, if you like this Gary Moore, or this Johnny Winter, you ought to listen to the guys they listen to. Right. And uh, that was that was all it took was uh, a little guidance from older musicians and hearing those records. The 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 blues breakers Beano record the live at the regal record the allman brothers live at the fillmore uh, you know freddie king albert king and all the guys that had played with albert king were were coming in the store right s thornton the bass player and um so just all of a sudden they turn me on this music and then there's actually like kind of people in town that are kind of affiliated with it and it just you know it was a decade of learning well, that was a that was a time too where there was regional gigs that hosted national acts. Yeah, and you know there was you know you would you would we had we had a place in Utica, New York called Tiny's, and I think I think Albert King played there one time. It was just a yeah. it was just a routing day, you know, and it held like two hundred people. You know, right, right, right. Like, what the hell's Albert King doing in there? But it it wasn't even a thing. But it was like a regional. It was for regional bands, local bands, and then they would they would splurge every once in a while and buy an act for a couple of grand or three thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And unfortunately, now it's like that farm system is 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 starting to slowly kind of fall by the wayside because they just either people retire, they sell out, they don't really you know they 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 right. figure out they could do more you know with a DJ than a full band, <laughs> D all the above. You know, what What was it, when did you realize you, A, wanted to do this for a living, and B, that you were a cut above the people that are, were, are, you know, like the, the, you know, there's local musicians that play covers and stuff like that, and you're like, no, nah, I, I can sing good, I want to write my own songs, I want to play my own guitar, and I want to do this on a national slash international basis. Well, <laughs> um, I, I definitely did not want to work at Anheuser-Busch, okay, that's the thing I knew. And right. my brother worked there for a long time, and and he and he hated it. And and it was fun. My dad had great stories, and we, you know, 
we spent so much time in that brewery. It was yeah. like everything that we did. But I, I was not going to work in that brewery. Like I wasn't going to do any kind of work like that. And all I kept thinking was, I want to act or play music or entertain or be, I want to do something. And that was not um, a possibility in my family. Right. My dad was born in 1922. My mom was born in 1930. They were like, you just need to get a job. We don't do that. You know, that's right. nice that you like to play your guitar, but mm -hmm. enough already. So right. the job at the music store at first was like, well, that's good enough. You get to be mm -hmm. around the guitars. What I didn't realize was that, first of all, there were people that were making a living in St. Louis. You mm -hmm. know, you talk about the touring bands. We didn't get to see a lot of touring blues acts, or I didn't until later in the 90s. Mostly because there were so many great blues acts in St. Louis performing at the, the black clubs. Why would you go see anybody else? I mean, Albert King was there. Chuck Berry was there. You'd go downtown and see any number of just fantastic artists. And I didn't know any of this was going on mm -hmm. until I started working at that store. There was, and what's funny is there's a, there's an area where there's like clubs downtown and on the North side and on the East side where like the black blues artists were playing. And then there's an area called Soulard. And that was where the newer uh, white blues artists were playing like the Stevie right. Ray Vaughan era yeah, guitar yeah. players. And I just had no idea any of this shit was even happening. Like right. I didn't know that you, well, the only concerts I had seen till then were ACDC, Van Halen, ZZ right. Top. So I didn't know this was going on. So then I realized, so these guys are just playing local, but they're making a living. They're yeah. like playing. So that was my first, like, okay, I could do this. Like, I'm going to, yeah. I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And then that's pretty good. You know, I'll work at the music store and I'll do that. So by the time I was 18, I was, I would, I mean, I went through the the whole playbook of playing in cover bands from the late 80s of learning all of the Motown, you know, all the stacks, yeah, all the Steve Cropper parts, you know, all the Mustang Sallies and Midnight Hours and Knock on Wood and playing with older musicians, right. learning to play 40 songs a night, four sets a night, four 50 sets. bucks a man, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I mean, I did that for years and I played in a country band. I, I, I've just done, I did whatever I was trying to learn, you know. Right. Um, I always wrote my own songs because I wasn't very good at learning the cover songs. Mm -hmm. I could learn the rhythm parts okay. The lead parts, man, I couldn't, like, you know, I couldn't learn them. And so, I, and I always wanted to kind of just play. So eventually these cover bands would fire me because when it came to the solo in, Sweet Home Alabama, I started finger tapping or turned a flanger on or, you know, like, did right. whatever. I was like, this is my chance to experiment and I want to see what I've been practicing. And they're like, hey, no, there's no flanger in, 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 uh, in Leonard Skinner. <laughs> yeah, you, you you were you were not interested in copying Steve Gaines or Ed King. It's like it's like, no, I want, I want, I want let's see what Eddie I don't know how. I didn't know how. I mean, I had no education. So I just kept writing songs and recording like with a drum machine and a four track because I was like, well, if we play this song, then nobody can tell me that that's the wrong part. Right. I'll just play what I want to play. And um, I think that's what attracted me. One to blues is that I, I liked, I love the feeling that I got when I saw the 
these artists perform. Right. They really moved. It was more than just, oh, they're playing a cover song. I felt like even though they were playing a cover song, Big George Brock was singing, you know, a Muddy Water song, but it, it was like it was like everything he had in him, he was giving to it. Right. was more than just a routine gig, you know, like you were getting the George Brock version. Right. And it may have been different. I mentioned this the other day. If you remember later on the live at the Regal, there's like different versions, you know, you get, cause it's multiple shows. Yeah. Right. And I caught that early on. I was like, that's not the same guitar party played earlier. Like it's right. different. And then I thought, okay, so he's just kind of playing in the same vein, but he's playing what he wants to play. Right. That seemed very appealing to me. You're reacting to the crowd, you know? To just kind of play in the moment. So I just, um, you know, I kept writing songs. I kept trying to learn. I kept hanging out. Um, but really the thing that, this is, that really made me want to go to the next level is we went to Chicago in 1993. Uh, I wanted to go to Buddy Guy's Club. Mm -hmm. I was going with my girlfriend, and that's all I wanted to do was I want to go to Legends. I want to go see Buddy Guy's Club. Right. And we walked in, and um, there was a girl playing named Joanna Connor. And she oh, was wow. the band. And um, really cute and had curly hair, you know, and had this Les Paul down here. And, um so I was like super excited and we stayed and we watched her and I bought, she was selling a CD. It was live in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was on roof records. Right. Maybe roof put it out. You know, I didn't even, I didn't know what that was, you know? Yeah. But I was like, how did you do this? Like, what is this? How did you make this recording? Like, who are you? Like, you're not famous. How, how did this possible? You know, you know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's we grew up. We grew up in that time where that was not possible at this other time. Right. And then it became more possible as we've grown along, where now any 10-year-old kid can make a double album on their laptop. Well, that was the thing, too. I mean, there had there was a budget for that. And, you know, I remember hearing a Joanna Connor, you know, around the same time, the mid-'90s. And it was like, you know, she was, you know, her and Walter Trout. And they were like, wow, they're, yes. they're international. These are they're traveling over there, you know, and, and and you're like, wow, what a what a concept of, of right. like, you mean I don't have to keep playing in upstate New York on the throughway circuit my whole life? There's I can I can go see Switzerland and Germany and you know all that, these that changed everything. All of, everything you just said, and 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 that Joanna show, bringing that CD home and seeing the name of that record label, like, what is this? This isn't Capitol or Sony or Warner Brothers, like. There was no internet. I didn't know shit. Right. And then I went looking. Oh, Alligator Records. Okay. There was Blind Pig was coming along. So then I started going to the Peaches Record Store, you know, looking for these record labels. Right. And then that turned into a whole other thing. And, and it, at that same time, uh, Walter Trout, Tab Benoit, Kenny Neal, uh, all these artists started to, started to make their way into the St. Louis area. And we would start to go see them and I would buy their CD and come back and, oh, what is this? What is just, oh, Justice Records? What's this one? Okay. Yeah, right. I need to find out about this. And again, I mean, it was the early, when did the inter, when did we have the internet? 
1990 something. I don't remember. 96, 97. But, you know, before that, there was also a label called Rounder. They did a lot yeah, of yeah. Full, room full of blues, all the East Coast guys. It's it, And you bought lab, you bought records by artists based on they were on that label. That's right. why I got to Chris Kane, because I like Blind Pig records. I got Chris Kane's uh, unscheduled flight because the record store I would go to, I would always, that's how I learned. And then he got some new trade-ins in, and I saw this, and I turned it over, and there was a Robin Ford quote. Oh, this is one of the best blues guitar players I've ever heard. Right. Like, oh, Robin Ford says this guy's the best. I got to listen to this, you know. And then, and then I heard it, and it blew my mind that he was playing all this chromatic notes in the blues, you know. Anyway, what what did it do? When did I decide? You know, I didn't think I was above the people in St. Louis. I don't know if I still do. There was like really good. I mean, Rich Fortas was playing around St. Louis. Yeah. And and if you if you don't know who Peter Mayer is, Peter Mayer was playing around St. Louis. There were just like extraordinary guitar players. Yeah. And I think when Chuck Berry lives in your area and there's just this thing, you know, the thing for me was it just gradually was like, well, I can work at the music store and I can play in a cover band. No one's going to give me shit. Okay. I think I'm going to, I'm going to make a CD. Like, like you could go make a CD like Joanna did. I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And then I did that and heard it and thought, well, that's not terrible. I've heard worse. I've heard, right. I've heard worse than that. That's pretty good. Let's sell it. And people started buying it. And that was different. A lot of the other bands were just still playing cover songs. Mm -hmm. And I just started to go, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep focusing on this. And I tried really hard. I had some good chances there in the late 90s, early on. Um, but, man, I really got into drinking and drugs, like mm -hmm. big time. Right. And um, I, I wasn't as uh, – my talent was not at the level of deserving anything, but I was definitely putting things out there and making contacts, going to Chicago. You know, Joanna would bring me to Chicago and let me play with her, open up for her, right. get me gigs. And, um, you know, I had some chances, but but the Walter Trout really tried to help me. We would play a lot of shows with, with Walter. Um, we tried to open up for you at the Duck Room. I think it was about 2002. One or two, right. Now, I just want to stop you there. I mean, I, I, I think you're one of the greatest of a generation. That's just, oh, and, and you are deserving. And one of the things that I, I've always, I've always admired about you is, is, you know, you always play the right thing at the right time and you're singing like, like a mofo, you know, and you write, you write great songs. So not to interrupt yeah. your story, but, but it was just saying, just, just on a, on a personal level, like, and I, there's a lot of people who feel that way as, as well. So you're, you know, it's it's interesting that Walter, I, I I read somewhere Walter intervened on 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 that in that time of your life and said, hey, listen, man, you got to get your shit together, yeah. because you know I think it was Carlos Santana did that for him, right? Yeah. And and you know it's, it it takes a lot to go up to a friend and say, hey, listen, man, you know you may not like what I have to say, but I'm doing this, and you'll thank yeah. me later. You know. You know so, Walter meant so much to me, and he, and he still does, and of course to a lot of people. But all those people, you know, a lot of them all, everybody I mentioned has helped me and let me do things. 
But Walter had a very specific, he became very famous in St. Louis for a couple of years where he had a song that got on KC95 at a time when they were starting to, you know, it was the heyday of blues rock, right? Late 90s. Right. And he got a song that was uh, getting played daily right. on KC and um, they were bringing him in for a show at Mississippi Nights and KC wanted me to p open the show. And then we were told, well, Walter Trout needs to hear your band. They need to hear you or the management or whoever. So we sent our CD. And uh, and the message we got back was, uh, pardon my French, Walter said, fuck yeah. Nice. And we liked it, you know. So nice. that was really exciting. And he was so genuinely nice. And I watched him and I was so blown away. And I thought, I just love what he was doing. It was like hard on his sleeve. He was doing whatever he, all emotion, you know, he was crying on stage in the middle of a song. It was all showing. And um, he was coming around so much that they would just start, okay, we're doing a show in Springfield. Hey, we got a show in Columbia and they were having me come play. And that was just, and he was talking to Thomas Roof. He was making a contact back in 99, you know? So, when he finally saw me one night and he was like, what's going on with you? Like, where's your wife? Like, who's this other chick? You know, where, don't you have kids? Like, right. how, how, how long have you been drinking today? Like, right. it's six, you know? And eventually it came to a head and we played at Union Station in St. Louis. And I was, I mean, just whacked out of my mind on drugs and uh, probably played, you know, terrible. And that, when we were done, he would always bring me up and we walked off and he was standing there and he just looked at me and he goes, you're not playing and don't leave. Just mm. sit there. And I was like, Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> like what's going it on? Sounds like Walter. Uh, yeah. And you know, so he ruined a perfectly good high for mm. sure. And he just sat down and, and honestly, I think he kind of yelled at me and, um, and just said things that I didn't want to hear and told me about his own sobriety and told me about Santana. And, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you're going through, but I've met your wife. You have kids and a family, you have talent and you're giving God the finger, right? By the whatever you got going on and, and you can't play with me anymore. That was the thing that, that hurt the most is right. he said, you can't play with me anymore until you get your shit together. Right. I, you know, I can't support this. And, uh, and you know, I didn't go and get sober the next day. I mean, right. it took a few years, but he was like the first person that I contacted in, you know, in a musical way. Within the first month, I got sober. And uh, I never forget him. He started crying on the phone. He said, you call me night or day. Right. Anytime you need me, you can call me. Right. And he's been that way for me ever since. And um there's a responsibility that he made me realize, not just to your obvious responsibilities that I have a family yeah. and people that, you know, right. but you have a responsibility to, uh, to, if you're going to play music and to use your talent and to do it the right way. And, you know, I have so much respect for him and uh, I can't thank him enough. And uh, anyway, that's you know, all. Rare the ones that, like, I, I put Walter, and I always tell him this, and he gets embarrassed. I said, listen, Walter, I looked at you as proof of concept. Like, I looked at Gary Moore. Right. 
proof of concept. Right. If you build it, they will come. And you proved that they that there's a big audience for this music in yeah. Europe. So I was I was following right. your, your your footsteps. But Walter Trout, like BB King, you know, rarely are the ones that can get through this music business um, unscathed, where somebody yeah. have a bad thing to say about somebody or something. Yeah. Walter Trout is one of those guys where I don't know anybody's ever said anything bad, and if they did, I think there would be a thousand people, including myself, that would pounce on him. What do you right, right, right. Yeah, he's a lovable person. He's a lovable person, and and I always find people like that are the most talented. That just they just they're just Walter. What do you, what do you want? I'm, I I play, I sing, I'm great. And you you nailed it. I mean, it was that it was just that constant step forward. Like I'll work at the music store. I'll learn to play locally. Okay, I'll write my own songs and, and I'll sell my CD locally. And now, okay, I'll be the opener for these acts when they come through because I love all this music. I want to meet the artists. I want to, you know, I want to be around the scene. And then it became, okay, I can't be Walter Trout, but he's telling me if I get to Europe, mm -hmm. that they'll really like me. Right. And so the drugs and alcohol might have, you know, it kind of slowed me down for a minute. There was this definitely these, this time period where I had to get clean and sober and then kind of start over. But it was always in my head like, man, if we could just get this thing going, Walter tells me he's doing this. He says this is possible. And mm -hmm. once that was in my head, it, that was really just the goal was, man, if we could just get to that level of touring the country and maybe going to Europe, my dreams will have come true. And, and they really have. I mean, they really have. I remember the first time I went to Europe, I was like, and, and those tours are not easy. Let's live. Not let's really go. are, no. They're not easy. It's, it's, it's a brutal schedule. You're doing day drives. But I remember showing up to Amsterdam and I go, what have I gotten myself into? This is crazy. Yeah. I did it, right? Utica, New York, to Amsterdam, you know, on my own yeah. name. Tell me, tell me about Texas. You live, you live in Texas now. I do, yeah. I live, actually, I live in Amsterdam. I live in Nederland, Texas. Nederland. Right. When, when did you move from St. Louis to Texas and why? Okay. I'll keep it short. Great story. Um, like Walter talked to me, it, it, it definitely worked in the end. But I'm telling you, you know, I was pretty bad off on drugs. So uh, I stole a, my dad's credit card. Mm -hmm. I stole a, I did not own a guitar. I stole a, an acoustic guitar. I bought a Greyhound bus ticket from St. Louis to Key West, Florida. Okay. Where I thought, no one loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go there and sleep outside and, and maybe I'll die high. And, you know, woe is me. And uh, I, you know. I left and ran away, like at not and not in a cute way, like, oh, that's kind of fun. How old were you? 18? No, 30, 32. I had three kids. I'd been married twice. Right. It, it, it was terrible. It was a very non-hemming way type of, of way of yeah. this is like the worst way, you know, it's not not funny at all. And um, you know, long story short, I got down there and and whether you believe in a creator or not. Every time I wanted things to be terrible, something kind of worked out for me. Something kind of kept working out for me. And eventually I thought I, you know, so I gotta get, I gotta get it together. And I need some, I had met a girl and I got her phone number 
and she was from Texas. Mm-hmm. And I remember she was really cute and she didn't know me. So if I could get to where she was, like maybe I could, she could be my new victim. I could take advantage of this person for a while. And two, I had a friend that worked for Fender. His name was Larry Barnes, mm-hmm. who was the longest running Fender employee and still probably is. He was our rep. And um, I called him and I said, Larry, I need a job. I'm living in Florida. I left out the drug addict, semi-homeless part. Right. So I need a job. Can Fender hire me? And he said, you know, we, we got a new job and um, you need to check it out. So I, I mean, within a week, I flew to Scottsdale, Arizona, and they hired me. I mean, I had to go to Walmart, Joe, and buy a suit right. with money that someone loaned me. Mm-hmm. And I flew to Scottsdale and uh, they hired me to work for Fender. And I moved to Texas. They, they said, we need you to move to Texas. You're going to be our product specialist. I went around guitar centers and, and demoed the failed Cyber Twin. Ah, buddy guy used to use one of those. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, it was, that was my job. Right. Was, this is the country channel. Bing, 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 bing. This is the metal channel. Hard, you know, it's like classic <laughs> rock, Brit rock. Right. So that was... That was the gig. It was a great job. I mean, I was homeless now making 40 grand a year and they moved me to Texas and uh, I looked that girl up and we started dating and things were going good. And, uh, but eventually the, the, you know, cocaine is really cheap in Texas. When you live next to Mexico, it's way cheaper than St. Louis. It's like, uh, you know, you can, you can get a lot more of it. Right. It's like if you live in Sonoma and you like red wine. Yeah. So it just hit, you know, it hit ahead real quick. And um, uh, man, I have a great, have great Fender stories and they love them. But I was, I was fired after five months. Okay. The Fender Musical Instrument Corporation. And, and I'm still known in some circles as, ooh, did he pull a Zito? Oh God! So I'm very, I'm very proud of that. Um, right. Fender's been nothing but good to me all these years. Um, they were, they were been so great to me. But, but I met my wife. She helped me get sober. She was the only person that really kind of had an inkling that maybe something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I had nowhere else to go, and and she was helping me, and I got sober in Nederland, Texas, and. I've been here 18 years. I've been sober 17 years. And uh, it's a great little town. It's not South St. Louis. It's really culturally different. We're on the Gulf right. Coast. It's kind of Louisiana. It's kind of right. Texas, you know. Right. Um, I love it. And uh, everything has worked out. Well, first of all, congratulations. And, Thanks. You know, you know, because, you know, my friend, the guitar, uh, my friend and everybody's friend, Norm Harris, he you know, the Norm's Rare Guitars, we, we, yeah. we do a lot of work for the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles, which, which helps homeless people. And, and, wonderful. And, 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 you know, and we do this out of the goodness of our hearts. And we, we have this little saying, being he's a guitar dealer, I'm a musician. We were all one left turn away from being, uh, being yeah, on yeah. the other side of the track. And, it doesn't and, take and, long, man. No. It doesn't take long when it spirals and it's, and it's difficult, especially, you know, I, I've known a lot of people gotten sober over the years. 
if it doesn't take the first time, less people are willing to bet on you the second and third oh, time. Yeah, so yeah. It takes three, three. It, finally, there's the there's the come to Jesus moment, and you're like, oh, right. now now it sticks. If we could figure out what that come to Jesus moment is, we could sell it and right. be really rich. But I, I don't know what that is. Well, it's like it's like I've struggled with my weight my whole life, and I'm not I'm not trying to make a false equivalency to to drugs and alcohol, but 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 food addiction is the same same way. It, it, you know when the diet starts? Not Monday, right now. Yeah. And, and well, I don't take that lightly. I know you're. There's many conversation we have. You're always concerned about. Well, I'm starting to diet again. Well, I'm down ten pounds. Oh, here's a picture of me. Now I look fat. Blah blah. blah. It, 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 and the thing is, you only see yourself a certain way, and and it, and it's and it's a, it's a, and it, every day is a it, every day is a, a win and a win, you know. Right. And, and and if you if you if you make it so on your own on your own volition. Joe, just remember, my wife told me the most important thing that I because I would uh, we're Italian and we like to eat, mm. and yeah. um, I'm always I see a picture and I go. God, look at this fat ass. Look at why does it have to look like this? And 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 she'll deny it, but I, I'm telling you, one time she just goes, "Hey, well, good thing is everybody loves a fat blues guitar player." <laughs> and I always remind myself that. Well, we're aging. We're you know, my whole goal is as I get older to just be a fat blues guitar player. Right. So it all work out. <laughs> it's not like it's un, un, unheard of, but um, you know. To wrap up here, I mean, I think a testament yeah. to your life in music is 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 your is your last record, you know, the Chuck Berry tribute, rock and roll, and 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 the list of people that appeared on it is is would be the envy of anybody, you know. Um, I'm taking myself off the table. I'm just saying that that you're it's only great. yeah. You 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 call out to your friends, and 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 they came they came you know guns blazing and and made a great record. Tell me how you had the idea. I mean, I obviously the St. Louis connection, but sure, why sure. why the music of Chuck Berry? Well, I just, um, I mean, I, I won. I mean, I really do love Chuck Berry. I mean, I have the been listening to that chess box set since it was you know released physically, and it's always on my phone. It's always kind of a go-to, especially when we were traveling a lot and flying. It's just something I listen to. I like the comfort of just the old recordings and that it's just, he's playing guitar and he's singing and he's got these tunes. It's, I don't know. I've just been listening to it since I was a kid. So it's always very comforting. Right. Um, I had said something, I've had that idea for years. Um, man, I want to do a Chuck Berry trip. How come no one's done like a, like a, in our world, you know, like the last time they did one was in the nineties um, you know, they did one. The other thing is when I was uh, a junior in high school, they filmed and did the concert for, uh, Chuck Berry, you know, with Keith Richards and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and everybody, the, um, what the heck's it called? My mind's blanking. What's the movie called? The well, Hail, 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 rock and roll. Hail, rock and roll. And, and, and I never forget it. Cause it was, it was on the news, you know, it was on the news like for weeks that all these uh, heavy hitters were coming and they were doing this, you know, big filming for this movie in St. Louis. I mean, there's not much movies being made in St. Louis. So that was a big deal. I like the interview with Keith 
he's telling him about the whole experience. And at first, he's like up in the chair like this, and you see the bottle of Smirnoff in the sink, at the, <laughs> the dressing room of the Fox. I yeah. found the sink. I found the dressing room. Let's yeah. I, I got to find it. By the end of the dress, uh, by the end of like he's describing the end of the night, he's like this, <laughs> and you see the the contents of the bottle have gone down by at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, it must have been a rough week for Keith. What is Keith it? That's going. I, I probably watch that movie at least once a year. Still, it's mm-hmm. so great, you know. So I don't, look. I mean, sure, it's a great ploy. Hey, how about I get a bunch of you know more famous guitar players than me, and we all put this Chuck Berry thing together? But really. Sincerely, it was, I love this music. I love playing this music. And I kept telling Thomas Roof, man, would you let me make this Chuck Berry record? I'll get everybody I can to help me. Right. And we'll get a different guy, you know, or girl, and, and we'll play these songs and we'll, we'll bring this music back out and we can do shows and revive, you know, everybody listening. And by the way, I mean, Chuck was still alive when I had this idea. Right. Um, I, I, look, I'm not wasn't good friends with Chuck, but I opened up for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he came in the store. I got to know his front his son Charles yeah. pretty well in the '90s because that's when he started to play with his dad, mm-hmm. uh, and he would come in the store. And um, anyway, I just kept bringing it up, and and uh, the timing wasn't right here or there. And then Chuck passed away, and they released his his last record right you know his record came out so um i just kept sitting on it and sitting on it and finally i got got him to bite um mm-hmm. you know at ruth and once i got that green light um uh, i just took off i mean i just started you know going after because i thought well who 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 doesn't want to play chuck Berry? i mean no matter what the genre if it's alex skolnick from testament if it's Joe Bonamassa, if it's uh, Jimmy Vivino, Sonny Landreth, everybody grew up knowing Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. learning Chuck Berry licks. Um, and Johnny Good, you would be the, probably the, one of the first songs you would sing if you're a buddy, you know, or, or, or roll over Beethoven, you know. Right. So um, that was really, it was really just to celebrate the music. And, and honestly, my thought always is, as a touring artist, is, well, whenever we make a record, what do I want to play? That's what mm-hmm. I always think. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking, oh, what's the what's going to be a big hit song that we can get? I'm always thinking, what do you want to play for the next year? Because yeah, exactly. that's what I'm going to do. And I mean, how much damn fun would it be if we played Chuck Berry for the next year every yeah. night and got paid for it? That would right. be unbelievable. You know, so um, no one said no one said no. Everyone was very receptive, including yourself. You were extremely gracious. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell people I still owe you a couple of Diet Cokes. Uh, fee. <laughs> that's your fee. You were very generous. And um, I still get, you know, the wee wee hours. Uh, that was I'm going to be honest now. People tell me. Mm-hmm. They think maybe that's your greatest guitar solo really? ever recorded. Not because there's not other great guitar solos, but I think because you let loose. And it wasn't controlled letting loose in a in an artistic song that you were pairing up mm-hmm. right. totally or a part of the song and keeping it in the... It was yeah. just kind of a... 
that thing that we love just let loose a Danny Gatton escapade. And it, I, I remember texting you because I was in the basement of the Sunset Marquee studio and I texted you, I go, slow, medium, or what did I say, nuclear? No, no, no. It was better. You go, hey, man, I'm doing this song. Do you want traditional or fire and fury? That's right. Fire and fury. And, <laughs> and I you're got like, fire so, and fury. Oh, my God. I got so excited mm. because, uh, you know, you're one of the few uh, friends that I have that I know, like, we all listen to the same thing. We come up on the same stuff. We know all the same right. tricks and, and, and all of the guitar players that we just love. And when you wrote, but you can do it. That's the difference. You can perform it. So when you put Fire and Fury, I was like, oh, hot damn, this is going to be shit. <laughs> Woo! Well, wait. you know, it was funny because I had a little Fender amp, and I use it on all, I've used it on everything from, like, you know, Jordan Rudis's record to, yeah. you know, I mean, it, Bob, you know, you know, it's like, you know, Bobby Rush and it's a, it's a, it's a little Fender Pro Junior that they, at the studio owns and it's good for everything except that song. And I, and I, and I'm trying to do the really chunky Gary Moore stuff. I go, this is not happening. So we, we split the signal into a, it was a, it was a plug-in, which I know is a big and, and it was a mess of boogie dual rectifier. I said, I, I go, I farm, you said, yeah, it was amp farm. Right. And we cut the real amp with the amp farm. And it, and I go, we didn't stop turning dials until it sounded like Gary Moore live in Paris. And I go, that's yeah, now, yeah. now we can unleash the, fire. Well, you had the clarity of the fender, you know, you could hear all of the, mm -hmm. in that, and then you had the drive here. And that, that was a really fun thing to do because, because it, it I said, well, like, you know, this is not, this is not period correct. This is just having fun for the sake of that having fun. Is, and that's that's why they tell me that, that it's just so fun. It's so over the top. It's so fantastic. And isn't that what we like about all of those heroes? <laughs> like A hundred percent. Isn't that what we want to always hear? You want to go put on, you know, Roy Buchanan and just hear him eat a guitar for an hour, you know, yeah, not, yeah, it's, 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 not it's, hold back and play nice notes. I want to hear them. And, and I, but you, it was a great solo. I mean, it was just. Thank, uh, thank, and I was, I'm honored to be on it. Tell the folks what, um, what, what your plans are going for for the next six to eight months, maybe a year. What, where can they find? I know you're doing some gigs. Yeah, yeah you know, I'm, I've been home. I've been home. Um, the last great things we did was we we were on your cruise that the cruise right. was phenomenal had a ball and we did one chuck berry show um that was really great last year and then it's just been like everyone else we have a few things i have a show this saturday in houston at the heights theater with uh, mm -hmm. jim stuler but of course when this airs that'll be in the past right so it's kind of a little spotty we get once a month there might be somebody trying to do a show generally in texas Right. Or Florida, in those areas. Mm. Um, I'm hope, hopeful that we'll tour, but but really, I'm I'm home, taking care of family. I'm running my record label. I have a record label called Gulf Coast Records. Right. So um, I have a new album that I'm working on called Resurrection that I'm really excited about, and it, it it'll come out on Gulf Coast Records sometime, probably at the end of the summer. So that's been kind of my main thing. I'm working with David Z, who I've done many records with. 
I'm excited. We're working together and he's helping me produce it. But again, it's in a a COVID world. So we, we record the band and do all that. And then we kind of take the tracks and, um, but it's been fun. It's been all, all, all of it's been great. And so I've been working on the label and doing that. Uh, we do have shows this summer booked, but I hope we get to play. (laughs) Um, I will tell you this. I think I've gotten pretty good at, at guitar. Right, at least you're playing. I know. I know. Cats. I've been I know home. Cats are not playing. I, I've been I, home I, playing every day, practicing, that's, working on that's, shit. That's uh, good. I, 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 um, a friend of mine who's who just moved to Nashville, and and uh, I, I'll text him like, "Are you playing?" And he's like, "No." And 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 he's like, he's like me. We've been playing since kids. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I haven't picked up. I had to do something the other day, and my hands are all. It's like, it, it's. I and it's weird because I live in a house of guitars. I, I, I branded it. You know. Right. But, but I'm one of those cats that like, like if I don't have a reason, like I, I need, I need to know that. that I know. Woodshedding is going towards playing in front of humanoids. Right. I've, I've just been lucky enough to stay busy with my other things that I do, mm-hmm. producing. Working on the record label, I do this work for True Fire, which is a really—they're really great. Great company. Mm-hmm. We cut. They had us cutting backing tracks last year at my studio, so I had you know the musicians working, and so it was always kind of a need to to have the guitar and to, to play the guitar, and um, so that's it's been fun. You know, I would love to go do my job again. Is what I would like to do. I think everybody's there, and um, exactly. Every, I don't feel like it's only me. Um, I'm happy to be home. My family's happy I'm home. Although I think uh, you know they're ready for me to to maybe get out of the house again a little. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> I, and you know, and it's like a lot of early on in the pandemic, it was very selfish for musicians to say, "It's like, listen, I risk, I really wish I can go do my job." Well, now that we're a year into this thing, and there is a vaccine, and it's starting to roll out, I don't think it's selfish at all for no. the the I don't know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of not only musicians and and bands and support crew and audio people to finally say, you know, okay, we we. We've taken the huge hit here, okay, and not not a lot of people are talking about the music industry as far as the right. impact. Um, you know, they're, they're more skewed towards again another hugely impacted business, the restaurant and bar business, and and right. downtown. But after a certain point, you're just gonna go, okay, um, if there's a if we can go play these regions and we can go do this kind of thing. Let's go do it because it, it, it's not it's it's not selfish and and the supply and demand oh. will warrant, warrant exactly. whoever shows up. It's it's not it's not like we're forcing everybody to sit next to each other and it's not like it's mandatory no. to show up. So if you're, I'm, I'm very with hopeful with the vaccine that we'll get into a situation by summer where just maybe some of the liability will be more on the individual. And the places will be able to be kind of open and safe. And if you've had your vaccine and you feel very comfortable, please come on out. And if you don't, then you can stay home or whatever. But we could kind of get back to work. So I I just, you know, I miss the fans and I miss playing music. I tried to do a million things in nine months. Right. I've had four different hairdos. I've lost and gained 20 pounds back and forth. All, you know, all of the above, like everyone else. And, um, but I would love to to go 
get in a, a, a van and drive around the country again and stay in uh, crappy uh, hotels. I, man, I just miss it. I love it. Yeah, I love doing it. I know you do too. Um, so that's, that's the plan. The plan is to keep doing what we were. <laughs> I'm yeah, just right. hoping we're going to do it, you know? Hey, so, um, hey Mike, pro tip, do yeah. not cut your own hair. <laughs> I did it. I did it in December because I, I, I had COVID in December and okay. I had a very mild case of it. And I, and I was, I was basically, it was three, I felt crappy for three days. And then for the next two weeks until I knew, you know, I, I had another test scheduled two weeks later. So I didn't, didn't see anybody talk to anybody. I was very fastidious. I'm, I'm a neat freak anyway. So this was like literally my Super Bowl of cleaning the house. And, and I feel very lucky that I didn't have a bad yeah, case. Yeah. But on one of these days where you're just kind of stuck at the house and you, you're becoming isolated and, 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 and creepy, you know, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take, the, I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the scissors. I'm going to cut my own hair. I go, you know, if, I was going to ask if it was a it, So can I. Bad <laughs> idea. And it looked good for two days. And then about a week later, it started to grow in. And it took all the powers of Garth Brooks's personal hairstylist in Nashville to get this back to a <laughs> semblance of, of, of non-shearing. Yeah, I don't know that I would do that. But I have kids, so my daughters cut my hair at one point. Okay. It, it was, uh, you know, it was awful. But it was kind of at that point, like, well, the world's going to end and we're all at home. So I'm just letting my kids like, like shave my head, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's like frontier living at some point. <laughs> it was definitely frontier living. Well, yeah. I'm glad you didn't get too sick. I had it as well uh, at the end of December. My wife and I, luckily it wasn't, um, you know, it was pretty mild also, but uh, you know, we, it's, it's, it's a real thing and it's impacted us all. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have this surge of creativity. Mm -hmm. We'll have the surge of people wanting to be uh, social again at some point, and, and music will be healing. That's my great hope. You know? uh, that's a great way to end. Mike Zito, thank you very much for being here. Uh, you're, you're a oh superstar. Uh-oh. No. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to let you tell me how great I am. You're a superstar. You're a legend. You're one of my favorite. Look at look look at those kids. You know I love you. Look at I these know, guys. man. Jeez. Hey, let's go get a, a meatball sandwich. We were both fat and jolly. <laughs> <laughs> That's about 16 years ago, I think. Oh my god. Uh, oh my god. So listen, thank you. You're very generous always. You're you're a very good friend. I always think of you as a friend. Um, first but you're very generous with uh, the community you've done a lot of great things the last year for a lot of musicians and uh, you're you deserve you're definitely one of the best guitar players i've ever watched ah. mike zito thank you for being here you're a superstar i love you and and just one of the love greatest you. and what you do for the community is very inspiring and i i look forward to the day that we 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 get in a room in three dimensions and, and, and throw the horns for the blues. <laughs> I love you too, Joe Bonamassa. Thank you, brother. Thanks, guys. This has been live from Nerdville, from New York City and this great state of Texas. Until next time, same time, same place next week, ladies and gentlemen.